Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspire Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. good to see you this morning. I am glad that you are here, and I hope you're glad to be here too. Uh, I'm excited uh, to get into today's message. Um, It's interesting because on Friday, I just have a really quick trip. I'm taking a real quick flight to Southern California to speak at an event there. And um, it's always fun uh, because uh, when you go to different events, just depending on the church tradition, you kind of take on certain norms. Uh, So I grew up where some of the time I went to a Presbyterian church, other times I went to um, a a Pentecostal church, and it's all different, right? So for instance, with like the Presbyterian church that we went to, when they said like services from 10 to 11, it ended at 11. Like not 11.01, not 11.02, it ended right at 11. But when I go to the Pentecostal church, that thing wasn't ending until like two, three sometimes. I mean, going, and then they have like lunch after potluck. It was just awesome. But it just be this extended, extended experience. So crazy. And they could take like one simple scripture and they would just take hours just going through it. And it is funny. And so uh, the event I'm going to leans a little more on the Pentecostal tradition. So I'm expecting it to be uh, quite a time. Uh, but you know, whenever you get into the airplane, they always give those instructions. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And so they show you like where the exits are. They show you how to tighten the seat belt, which y'all does not fit me. It does not. I like have to pretend, you know, for real. It does not fit. And, and they tell you like, hey, if the, la- if the plane lands in water, the, the seat that you know, you know, you're sitting on is your little inflatable cushion, which will do me nothing. Absolutely will help me not at all. Um, but the one instruction they give that I always find interesting is they say, listen, if the plane is going down and we lose pressure, then masks will drop, right? Y'all know this, right? So the, the mask will drop. And the instruction is, well, put your mask on yourself before you help someone else put their mask on. That's the instruction. You know, so if the plane's going down, make sure your mask is good. And I always think to myself, you don't got to worry about me. I'm going to make sure my mask is good before I help anybody else, right? But it's interesting because the message there is, hey, listen, we know that you are going to want to do the good thing and help someone else before helping yourself, right? That's kind of the message. But we want you to get your mask on. So they have predetermined that our minds will think, hey, listen, we want to do the good thing and help someone else before helping ourselves." And the question is, where does that come from? Where does that come from? Um, So last week, we really started this mini series, and uh, it really is in partnering with Uh, Something that we've been doing the past few months and going into 2023, which is we want to stir you, we want to ignite you, we want to inspire you, we want to equip you to know the story and tell the story. To know the story and tell the story. See, believers have forgotten not only how to be storytellers, but they have forgotten the story. 
a story that society desperately needs. Because everybody is listening to a narrative and telling a narrative. Everybody's listening to a narrative and telling a narrative. Everybody has what's called a worldview. In other words, a view of how they think the world does function and ought to function, should function, how it functions, why it functions. Everybody has a worldview. And especially here in the Bay Area, where there are narratives constantly competing with each other in the marketplace of ideas, right? And the story that Christ offers is starkly unique to every other story around. But what is that story? How does that story compare to these other stories, right? What is the evidence for this story, right? Is it rational? Is it coherent? Does it make sense of our existential reality? Is it a blind faith or is it a faith built on facts? And in a world of pluralistic beliefs, what is truth? How do we know Christianity is right? Well, and why should anybody care? Now, these are great questions, and this is where this word comes in, apologetics, apologetics. Now, apologetics is not an apology, even though that's what it sounds like, but it's really a Greek word that means to make a defense, to present a case of an opinion, of a theory. And so you can be an apologist uh, really on any sort of worldview. You can be a Christian apologist, a Muslim apologist, a naturalist apologist, an atheist apologist. An apologist is just somebody that is presenting a defense or a case for a worldview. And where we find this in scripture is 1 Peter 3.15 says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an apologia or an answer. That word there in Greek is the same word, to give a reason, a defense, a case. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, since believers cannot pull back the curtain and say, oh, look, see, here's God. He exists. See him right there, right? But since non-believers also can't pull back the curtain and say, oh, no God, then we are left with having to look at the evidence that we do have. We have to take the various sets of belief and look at them and ask different questions. Which one seems more rational? Which one is more plausible? And so what we are doing is we are presenting to you arguments so that way you can compare and make up in your own minds what you feel is the most rational, the most plausible. And of course, uh, what, what Pastor Phil, myself, and others will be doing is giving you reasons for God giving you reasons for Christianity. Now, with that said, um, this sort of mini-series, if you will, uh, really is about the existence of God. In other words, you might have heard the teaching last week, and really that teaching was on the cosmological argument, which basically says this, that, you know, talks about cause um, and effect. And and basically it says uh, anything that came into existence had to have a cause, because that's the effect. 
So anything that came into existence had to have a cause. The universe came into existence. Therefore, it had to have a cause. And last week, Pastor Phil did a great job at laboring on showing evidence on why that cause is God. Why that cause is God. This week, we're looking at another evidence, another argument for the existence of God. And I just want to say from the onset here that now you could walk away from these teachings and you might think, well, okay, but how do we know that the Christian God is the God that is real? Uh, Why not uh, the Muslim's version or the Mormon's version or the Hindu's version or the Jehovah Witnesses version? And those are all incredible questions and we will get to that. But the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, does God even exist? Is there even a God? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord God, because you have not just created us and folded your arms and left us, but Holy Spirit, you are continuously chasing us. Your grace calls us, God. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, today that I pray that as the believer hears this teaching, that it will anchor their faith. And I pray that as the skeptic hears this teaching, that it will cause them to have their minds and their hearts and their spirits open to the reality of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Today, specifically, we're not just asking, does God exist? But the evidence that I want to present to you is on morality, the moral argument, and how morality points to God's existence. If you are a movie lover, you're going to enjoy this sermon, I think. But uh, actually, it's going to be more teaching than preaching. So, but, uh, (laughs) Gerald, it's like, yeah. Um, But there is this movie called Wreck-It Ralph, and... Uh, basically what this movie is about is there's this arcade and within this arcade are various games and these characters can kind of come into and kind of connect with each other and have relationships with each other and and talk and hang out and so on and so forth and and there is this main character who's actually a bad guy in his game and he cannot help but wreck everything. Everything he does, everything he touches, it's just within his nature to wreck stuff. And so he wrecks the building and then fix it. Felix comes in and you have to fix it. And that's kind of the game, to try to fix things before he can destroy everything. The problem is, is that even though he's a bad guy, he doesn't want to be a bad guy. He wants to be a good guy. And so what's funny is, you know, the, in the movie is you get all these other bad guys that sort of have these meetings. It's like a bad guy, you know, anonymous meeting. Uh, and they come together and they talk about the problems with being bad guys and how they want to be good and all this stuff. And at the end of every meeting, they kind of give this chant. And the chant says this, I'm bad and that's good. I will never be good and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. So that's a chant, Right. And it's funny, it's cool, but it actually raises up some important questions about morality, doesn't it? Like, well, what's the difference between good and evil? Who gets to decide? Is there even such thing as good and evil? Or do we all just sort of decide for ourselves? And so today I want to attempt not just to answer these questions, but I want to attempt to show you that the existence of absolute morals points to the existence of God. 
Or in other words, the reality that there are absolute morals points to the reality that God exists. And so to help get me started today, we're going to watch this video that I think will kind of help give us some grounding before we move on. Can you be good without God? Let's find out. Absolutely astounding. There you have it. Undeniable proof that you can be good without believing in God. But wait, the question isn't, can you be good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? See, here's the problem. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And here's why. Without some objective reference point, we have no way of saying that something is really up or down. God's nature provides an objective reference point for moral values. It's the standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. But if there's no God, there's no objective reference point. All we're left with is one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than anyone else's viewpoint. This kind of morality is subjective, not objective. It's like a preference for strawberry ice cream. The preference is in the subject, not the object. So it doesn't apply to other people. In the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. It's not valid or binding for anyone else. So, in a world without God, there can be no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. God has expressed his moral nature to us as commands. These provide the basis for moral duties. For example, God's essential attribute of love is expressed in his command to love your neighbor as yourself. This command provides a foundation upon which we can affirm the objective goodness of generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality. And we can condemn as objectively evil greed, abuse, and discrimination. This raises a problem. Is something good just because God wills it, or does God will something because it is good? The answer is neither one. Rather, God wills something because He is good. God is the standard of moral values, just as a live musical performance is the standard for a high-fidelity recording. Without your love. The more a recording sounds like the original, the better it is. Likewise, the more closely a moral action conforms to God's nature, the better it is. But if atheism is true, there is no ultimate standard. So there can be no moral obligations or duties. Who or what lays such duties upon us? No one. Remember, for the atheist, humans are just accidents of nature, highly evolved animals. But animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. The cat's just being a cat. If God doesn't exist, we should view human behavior in the same way. No action should be considered morally right or wrong. But the problem is, good and bad, right and wrong, do exist. Just as our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real, our moral experience 
convinces us that moral values are objectively real. Every time you say, hey, that's not fair, that's wrong, that's an injustice, you affirm your belief in the existence of objective morals. We're well aware that child abuse, racial discrimination and terrorism are wrong for everybody, always. Is this just a personal preference or opinion? No. The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. What all this amounts to then is a moral argument for the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Atheism fails to provide a foundation for the moral reality every one of us experiences every day. In fact, the existence of objective morality points us directly to the existence of God. All right. So the remainder of this teaching is really going to be to break this video down and to help us digest some of these concepts, right? Philosopher Immanuel Kant is really the first person to lay out a moral argument. And then from there, other great minds have come along and sort of built upon his case. And so just remember that as we're going through the teaching today, that what we are asking isn't, can you be good without believing in God? Because of course you can be good without believing in God. There are many people that are non-believers, atheists, agnostics who live good and moral lives, correct? And some of them live good and moral lives better than people who are religious or who believe or proclaim or profess that there is a God. And so again, the question is not, can you be good without believing in God? The question is, does goodness exist if God doesn't exist? Whether you believe in God or not, that's the question. All on the same page? Yeah. And so what we want to do is, again, just sort of present these arguments. And I know they're running right back there behind the scenes to get the screens up. Can we just give it up for our, our production team in the back? Yes. Praise God. We'll see what happens. Maybe I stepped on a cord on the way up here and unplugged the whole thing. I don't know. But uh, here we go. So the, the, the argument, again, is this. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. So let's take the first one. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. What do I mean by objective versus subjective? So objective means something that is binding independently of whether somebody else believes it or not. Subjective means it's based on someone's feelings and opinions. So let me give you an example of maybe something that is probably objective, right? If you take, let's say, Hitler, and let's just say Hitler was successful. Let's just say the Nazis not only won the war, but they had world domination. 
and they brainwashed everybody to believe um, in their message, to believe that what they did to Jews and other people was right. And they, brushed, and they brainwashed everyone to believe that. Would that mean that what they did was right? No, everybody would agree that even if they were successful, it would still be wrong. Or let's take the KKK. Let's just say the KKK was successful in its racial hatred and violent acts. And they were to wipe out every race except for what they deemed to be worthy and good for human flourishing. If they did that, then the whole world that would be left over would be, again, brainwashed into believing that, well, what they did was right. But does it mean that it was actually right? No. So it's objective, something that is, that is valid and binding, independent, whether anybody believes it or not. Subjective, again, based on someone's feelings or opinions. And so the question is, well, if you are an atheist, if you are a naturalist, a humanist, and you look at these objective morals, where do you ground objective morality? How do you ground it? What do you stand upon to say that these objective, mor- that these objective morals are true? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a list of four things, and this is something that Tim Keller had produced, and, and uh, it hits all of sort of what a secularist might say in defense to where he grounds absolute morality versus, say, the Christian. So the first thing that they might say is this. Number one, well, we get our theories, our, we get our absolute morality from evolution, Evolution gives us our morals. The, feelings that you, the feeling that you should love people, that you should care for the poor, that you should stand up for injustice, all come from evolution because these things helped our ancestors survive and therefore we do it. But remember, the problem with that is that the baseline, the, the substance, the, 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 the substantive morality in evolution is survival of the fittest. And if we were to base our morals on survival of the fittest, then who's to say that I can't take you out because I deem you weaker than me? You see? That doesn't make sense. It can't be that. We don't live that way, right? Nobody does. Nobody says, oh, let's look at a certain people group and we determine that uh, because of their demographics or because of their health or because of their age or, whatever, or because of their skin color that we deem them weaker for mankind so we should just get rid of them. Nobody, nobody lives that way. Of course not. But if we were to, say, follow the moral grounding of evolution, that's exactly what we'd have to admit. So it can't be that. So number two, the second thing they say is, well, it's just pragmatic. It's practical. For practical reasons, it's in our best interest to work for equality and and to not starve the poor because it's in all of our best interest. Well, according to who? According to whose best interest? Those who own slaves would say that according to their best interest, it was good to keep slavery around. See? And something that's actually pointed out, which is interesting, is when you go and have this argument and you try to ground morality and saying, well, it's for your best interest, then what you're doing is you are appealing to your selfishness. 
If you're telling me that, you're appealing to my selfishness. You're making my selfishness the standard, right? Because it's for my best interest. Well, if that's the case, then I don't want to feed the poor. I want to think about my family. I don't want to adopt. I don't want to take care of foster kids. No, why should I do that? I, I want to think about the freedom I want to be able to have to, to spend my money on what I want and where I want to go and what I want to do. And, you know, I shouldn't feel obligated to, to go and give charity to, uh, you know, nations that have been wrecked by hurricanes. No, why should I do that? It's in my selfishness not to. Number three, the third reason they might give is it's social consensus. See, so society and culture come around and, and the consensus of that culture lets us know what's right and wrong, right? But that doesn't work because when the social consensus said that it was okay for Nazis to torture and exterminate Jews, surely it wasn't. But you'd have to say it was because social consensus says it was. Or over a thousand years ago, when everybody owned slaves, nobody a thousand years ago was standing up saying slavery's injustice, that, that slavery's unjust. Nobody was saying that. Social consensus was it was good. So according to this, well, then it was good. See? So then the last thing that maybe you're left with is just, well, it's just wrong. I don't know where it comes from. I can't explain it, but it's just wrong. And that's my personal opinion. Well, what gives me the right to force my personal opinion on you? What gives you the right to say your personal opinion has preference over mine? If we are both equal, if we are all human, then that means my opinion is equal. My feelings are equal. My truth is equal, right? And I, it'd be unjust for me to force my opinions on you, right? Why should I be made uncomfortable just so you could be comfortable, right? right. Or why should you be offended just so that way I'm not offended? See, what the atheist, agnostic, humanist has to determine is what many do. Now, throughout this teaching, I'm going to give you a lot of quotes from various people on both sides, so that way you don't think that Roger's just making this up. But also, if you're wanting these resources, please email us at spirechurches at gmail.com, and we'll, I'll make sure to give you links to all of the articles, the books, videos, so on and so forth that have been used for this. Or you can always call me up, like some people did last week, and we can just talk um, really quick. So I'll do that too. But listen to this. Prominent atheist philosopher of biology, Michael Ruse, says this. When someone says to love thy neighbor as yourself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves, but such references is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival, and watch this. He says, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Wow. See that? Wow. Renowned humanist and ethicist Richard Taylor says this. When a lion kills a zebra, it kills it. But the lion isn't guilty of murder. When a seagull may snatch a fish from the talons of another seagull, but it doesn't steal the fish. Stealing is a moral term that is a product of human thinking. It takes the fish, but it doesn't steal it. 
The very concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. See that? And so, and so the, this idea of like, yes, um, if you go and you watch, you know, a cheetah kill a gazelle, you don't pick up the phone and report to the police that you just witnessed a murder. Of course not. Well, what the humanist is saying and, and, what, and what the biologist is saying uh, here is like, well, yeah, that's true. We can't escape that. And because we're just accidents, because we too are just animals, then there really shouldn't be a difference when we do it. Now, that does not sound right, does it? You say, well, Roger, then maybe there just aren't absolute moralities. Maybe morality isn't absolute. Maybe it's subjective. Maybe it's not objective. Maybe it's subjective, right? Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe morality is in the eye of the beholder. Point two, objective morality and moral values and duties do exist. Jeld and I were talking this week about all sorts of moral movies and trying to, we just had some sort of, uh, you know, theological discussions over some of them. And this is one that came up, which is um, Captain America Civil War. Now in this movie, what's happened here is basically at the beginning of, you know, the film, the heroes try to save another by accidentally killing a bunch of bystanders. Now when you watch these movies, there's collateral damage throughout all the movies, Right. Well, at this point in the timeline, the world started to take notice. Hey, these superheroes, yeah, they're coming in. They're saving us from, you know, these bad guys. But at the same time, you know, innocent lives are being taken and buildings are being damaged and neighborhoods, you know, and so there's a problem. And so the Secretary of State approaches the Avengers team and, and they want them to sign a document that basically says, listen, we're going to keep the Avengers, but the Avengers are now going to come under the United Nations and the United Nations is going to be able to kind of determine what, what to do with the Avengers. When there's a problem, do they send them? Where do they send them to? How should the Avengers, you know, uh, respond? And what happens is, is in this movie, Iron Man agrees with this. He says, yes, actually, look what's happened. We, we need to do this. And so he wants to sign. Where Captain America, he's like, no, no, we shouldn't sign this. You know, what if we have to go defeat a foe um, that is, you know, going to destroy the universe and the United Nations doesn't want us to be a part of it? What if they don't want to send us? So, so there's disagreements here. Now, clearly, Captain America thinks he's right and Iron Man's wrong. And clearly, Iron Man thinks he's right and Captain America's wrong. Who's right? Who's wrong? But see, I don't want us to miss the point. The point is, is that each of them not only feel like they're right, but they feel the other person should feel like they're right. And that's very different. There's a story of these two prostitutes that went before a king and uh, they were, and one of them was, well, they were both crying out and complaining. And one of them uh, was telling what had happened. And, and she had said, listen, we both had babies around the same time. And, and uh, but the other day, this lady rolled over on her baby and, and, and killed her baby. And then in the middle of the night, she took her dead baby and replaced it, swapped it for my live one. And so now she has my baby. And so the king has to decide what to do. And so you find this in 1 Kings chapter 3, and here's Solomon, and look at what he says. He says this, then the king said, let's get the facts straight. 
Both of you claim that the living child is yours. Each says that the dead one belongs to the other. All right, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought to the king. Then he said, cut the living child in two and give half to one woman and half to the other. Then the woman who was the real mother of the living child and who loved the child very much cried out and said, oh, no, 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 my Lord, no, don't do that. Give her the child. Go ahead, just give her the child. Please don't kill him. But the other woman said, all right, he will neither be yours nor mine. Go ahead, divide him between us. Then the king said, do not kill the child, but give him to the woman who wants him to live, for she is his mother. When all of Israel heard of the king's decision, the people were in awe of the king, for they saw the wisdom that God had given him for rendering justice. Now, when I read this story, each of you, I'm assuming every person in this room would say, yeah, what the real mother did was absolutely wrong. I mean, right. And what the, and what the false mother did was absolutely wrong, right? Everybody would say the real mother uh, uh, saying, stop, don't kill the baby. Go ahead and give it to her. That was the good, moral, and right thing to do. And the false mother for kidnapping the child and then being willing to go ahead and murder the child. No, that's wrong and that's bad. All of us would agree, right? I don't think there's anybody in the room that would say, well, I guess if the false mother thought it was a good thing to do, then it was okay. That's her preference. That's her truth. That's her reality. No, no. See, all of us agree that there's something outside of the two women that is actually good, that is actually right. Objective moral values and duties do exist. What do we mean by value and duties? Well, value is of moral worth. In other words, that's what determines if something is good or bad. Duties is right and wrong, the obligation of those things. In other words, I might say it's a good thing for someone to take their summer to go teach underprivileged kids. That's a good thing, right? That's value. That's a good thing. But duty would be for me to say, actually, all of you have to do this because this is the right thing to do. So now all of you have to take your summers off and go and teach underprivileged kids. Well, that's very different because now I'm taking something that I'm deeming that I feel, that I personally feel is good and now forcing it on you. Or when we all do this, for instance, let's take racism. I'm assuming again that everybody in the room would say, I feel that racism is wrong. But we don't just want to stop there, do we? If we're standing face to face with the racist, we want to take it further, don't we? We not only want to say, well, I feel it's wrong, but we want to say, and you should feel it's wrong too. Right? Of course we do. Well, what gives us the right to do that? Who says? On what grounds do you see? Atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre and his commitment to naturalism drives him to have to make this comment. He says this, our core morality isn't true. There's no such thing as morality. It isn't true, it isn't correct, and neither is any other, anything else. Nature's just seduced us into thinking it's right. In other words, ultimately, there are no moral facts, and therefore, we must give up the idea that absolute morality is true in any sense. 
In other words, he's saying, listen, if there's no God, then morality is subjective. In other words, morality is just up to whoever says it's just a personal preference. It's now morality is just abstract. It's an abstract idea. Philosopher and theologian William Lane Craig says this, let's suppose for the sake of argument that moral values like mercy, justice, love, forbearance, and so on, that they just exist. Well, how does that result in any moral obligation for me? Who or what imposes upon me the duty to be loving and compassionate, forbearing, merciful, and so forth? How does just the existence of these abstract values result in any sort of moral duty or obligation for me to live in a certain way? After all, on this view, there are presumably other sorts of abstract objects that exist like greed and cruelty and selfishness. Those would also exist too, right, as abstract values. Well, what obligates me to align my life with one set of these abstractions rather than with a different set of abstractions? Well, without God, the answer is nothing. Do you see that? Ooh, somebody got a delivery. Praise Jesus. I heard that ring go off. You better answer it. Be like, get off my porch. You want to hear a true story? True story. So, I, so my ring goes off, and I see this lady, no joke, this lady, and I see her, you know, with our tables. We had, like, these folding tables that were on our porch, like, taking our tables, and so I get on it because I'm not home, you know, and I get on, I'm like, hey, hey, put those back, put those back, you know, and so I call Becca real quick, and I'm like, babe, some stranger is trying to take the tables off our porch. She goes, Roger, I forgot to tell you, I let my coworker borrow those tables. I felt so bad, I like yelled at this lady, <laughs> this lady to, anyway, don't do that. <clears throat> I felt like she was doing a bad thing. But maybe she felt like she was doing something good. I don't know. See, on the atheist or naturalist view, there is no foundation for ought. Somebody ought to do something. There's no foundation for that. They have every right. Listen, an atheist and agnostic, they could be a morally good person. And that's great, right? I mean, I want them. I want everybody to be good. That's great. That's great that they're good. But they don't have any foundation on why they should be good. They don't have any foundation not on just why they should be good, but why someone else should be good. You see? For example, if someone were to say, well, shouldn't you just be able to do what you want unless it hurts somebody else? According to who? Right? I mean, we could say that, right? Can, well, can, can I just do what I want if I'm not hurting anybody? Right? Can I just do what I want? Well, who says you can't hurt somebody? Isn't that what somebody says? But if you're starting hurting somebody, well, no, you can't do that. Why not? If that benefits me, if that benefits my position, if that benefits my family, if that benefits my success of survival, then why not? Why is it wrong? You see, this happens in the animal kingdom all the time. Atheist biologist, Professor Richard Dawkins, who Phil showed last week, he says this, he said, DNA neither knows or cares. We just dance to its music. In other words, the terrorists that drove the planes into the tower at 9-11, they didn't do anything wrong. They're just dancing to their music. You see that? Nothing wrong happened. There's not anything wrong. They just, they just they dance to their music. That's what happened. Just like if, you know, uh, I don't know, herd of elephants were to trample, you know, a crocodile. Well, 
life. Or rape. Someone can say, well, what, what makes rape immoral is that rape harms the victim in terrible ways. The victim feels pain and loses freedom and is traumatized. But again, if what's right and wrong is just your opinion, well, then that's just your opinion. To the person that did the rape, maybe they felt like what they did was right. Maybe they were a king and they needed, to, they, they needed to make sure that there was an heir to the throne for the succession of the kingdom to save lives. And so they went around and they said, we're just gonna, I'm just going to rape women. Well, if it's just a preference, if it's just opinion, if you have nothing outside of humanity to ground that in, well, then it's not really wrong. Even if you might feel it is, it's not really. You see? Or what about atrocities committed by the church in the name of religion? Like the medieval crusades, right? The Spanish inquisitions. What about that? Was that right? What about white supremacy that reads and quotes scripture but does these horrible acts? Is, is that right? Or what about when the United States had the Salem witch trials? Is that right? Or the Catholic priests that continue to abuse children? Is that right? Well, if morality is just preference, if morality is just what society says it is, if morality just comes from evolution, if morality is just something we do because it's pragmatic, then no, there's actually nothing wrong with any of that. And it's crazy because Science has done wonderful things. We, there are some amazing scientists, amazing non-believer scientists, atheist scientists, agnostic scientists, Muslim scientists, Christian scientists that have done amazing things. But what's fascinating about this is, is science can tell us maybe how to do something, but it doesn't tell us if we should. One of my favorite movies is Jurassic Park. And I about flipped out the other day. Y'all, I needed the saints to pray for me when I found out that my wife has never sat through all of Jurassic Park. I was like, no, we stop in right now. This is blasphemous, right? And I was like, you are ridiculous. And so we did. Um, and she's saved now. Just kidding. And so the actor Jeff Goldblum plays a scientist. He plays a mathematician, and he believes in chaos theory and whatever. Just watch the movie. And so what happens is this guy named Hammond, he went and he, for those of you who don't know the movie, uh, he went and found a way of basically cloning and recreating dinosaurs. So he makes real dinosaurs, and he wants to build a park so that way people can pay money to come see these live dinosaurs. Well, what ended up happening is as they were uh, bringing over one of the dinosaurs, the dinosaur killed somebody, there was a lawsuit. So before he can open the park, he had to go and get professionals to come and basically take a tour of the park, investigate, and sign off on it. And Jeff Goldblum's character was one of those people that had to come. And so they're seeing all these amazing advances in science, and they're seeing, you know, stegosauruses and bronchosauruses and T-Rexes and raptors, all of this incredible stuff. And they're beginning to kind of push back a little bit and say, this is awesome, but is this safe? Is this right? And in the movie, he says his famous line. He says, your scientists 
were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they never stopped to think if they should. See, Darwin himself, the father of evolution, he had a huge problem. He says, even though I believe in evolution, he says, I cannot escape the reality of moral absolutes. Morality is not subjective. If I were to just push you even a little bit, you would buckle under the reality that, no, it's objective. There is something outside of humanity that has to tell us what's right and wrong. It can't just be within humanity because then what makes one human? We already went through all of the various arguments. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. See, it logically follows. Let me give you this illustration there was a um, apologist who was holding a conference and he was giving a speech and then after the speech, she kind of had a Q&A. And, and so uh, this person stood up and this person uh, said, listen, I'm not a Christian. I'll never be a Christian. And the reason why is because look at all the evil in the world. Look at all the pain and the suffering. Look at tsunamis that take out and wipe out, you know, uh, all sorts of innocent people. Uh, death and disease that take the lives of little children, murders and mask murders and, and, and genocides. And he pointed to all of these things that were just evil atrocities. And the apologist said this, he said, listen, he said, if you're admitting that there is such thing as evil, then you have to be admitting that there is such thing as good. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, if you're admitting that there's such thing as evil and there's such thing as good, then you're admitting that there is some sort of rule, some sort of standard that you go off of so that way you can differentiate. You could tell the difference between this is right and this is wrong. Is that right? There's some sort of moral law that you go by to tell the difference. Yeah, that's right. Well, if there's a moral law, then there has to be a moral lawgiver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. The man replied, well, then what am I asking you? And he sits down. See, pointing to the reality of injustice and evil, it is a sticky question. But the question only is sticky if God exists. And because there are moral Absolutes, because there, are, there is such thing as, as objective morality, then there has to be something else, someone else outside of humanity that gives us that. Christian apologist Dr. Non Najorge says this, the problem is not the absence of evidence, but the suppression of it. The problem is not the absence of evidence, but the Suppression of it. Um, you know, as a pastor, one of the things that we do is we marry and we bury, right? It's kind of marry people and bury people. And in both ways, it's an honor, even though it's different. So obviously at a wedding, there's celebration, you know, and there's joy. Um, at most funerals, there can be a celebration of life, but there's 
a mourning. There's sadness. Um, and um, for me, having done both my parents' funerals, there's something that I say at every funeral, but doing your own parents kind of lands at home a little bit more for you, which is this. When we see somebody that we have loved, we love deeply, pass away, why do we cry? Why does it hurt? Well, the reality is, is that something doesn't feel right about it. When we read of a baby who has passed away, it saddens our heart. Why? Something doesn't feel right about it. Something's off. Something's wrong. This isn't how it's supposed to be. There's something within us that says this is not how it is supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be separated from my loved one like this. There's something within us that says this is not right. What is that? Where does that come from? There, there, there's something within us that's a desire that wants to continue to live on, a desire that wants to not be separated from our loved ones, that there's something within us, some sort of desire that we have for eternity. Where does that come from? No other species on the earth has that. Why do we have it? Where does it come from? C.S. Lewis says this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, because there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, because there is such thing as water. If I find myself having a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I found this on the web. Oh, and Siri agrees with me. Right? It, where does that desire of knowing that this is not how life is supposed to be? Who says? Where does it come from? See, the real problem is not the lack of evidence. That's not the real problem. The, the real problem that people struggle with is not that there's not enough evidence to make a judgment on if God exists. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that people don't want God to exist. Why? Because they know we know, I know, you know, that if God exists, then one day we are going to have to stand before that God in judgment. And we know that no matter how good we've been, how right we've been, how nice and kind we've been, that terrifies us. Because how in the world do we live up to that standard? It's interesting because Jesus came, and when Jesus came, full of grace and love and mercy, you know, nice Jesus, cool Jesus, homeboy Jesus, right? When he came, he didn't lower the bar, he raised it. 
He didn't say, oh, listen, uh, in order for you to get to heaven, let me just lower this bar for you a little bit. No, he raised it. Remember when he said this? He said, listen, if you even hate somebody else, then you've committed murder. What? Are you kidding me? Well, how am I supposed to live up to that? Right? What are you talking about, Jesus? And so because we feel the, the, this weight, this pressure, the fear of being judged and coming up guilty, we don't want that. The paralyzing feeling of having your life measured and coming up short, we don't want like, we don't want that. And so now we're in this rat race of performance where all these insecurities begin to come out. And now we have to get people to like us and we want, we want to make sure we're accepted and we fear rejection, right? And now we, at work, we need to cut corners and, and, and we need to outperform and we need to cover up mistakes with people. So I don't want anybody to know. At church, we have to make sure that we, that we present ourselves morally accurate. We don't want to tell the neighbor what really is going on in our hearts and in our minds and what we're thinking about and our lusts and our desires and our proclivities. Of course not. We need to perform. There is this weight of performance upon us. You know that. When you go on a date with somebody, right, and you're trying to get them to like you, you don't show them all the things that are ugly about you. Of course not. You put on your best performance. You put on an act. Of course you do. And see, when that rules our life, you know what that means? We have forgotten the story. We have forgotten the story. Because here's the story. The story is that Jesus came, he died on a cross, but not just so you can be forgiven, even though there is that. Now, that's not the story. That's not where the story ends. See, the judge sits here and, and in a court of law, you, you come up and, 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 and you're deemed uh, guilty and, and the judge looks at you and says, well, even though you're guilty, you know what? I'm gonna pardon you anyway. You are forgiven. Now you can leave. That's not how the story ends. Oh no. See, what the judge does is the judge says, you're pardoned, you're forgiven, but hold on, wait a minute. My son, who has nothing to do with what you did is gonna serve your sentence. He's innocent. And you are gonna walk out of here and you're gonna live the life that he could have lived. You see that? He gives you his righteousness. He dies in your name and he gives you his name. That's the story. And so no longer do you have to fear or dread standing before God the Father, but now you can stand in full confidence knowing that when he looks at you, he sees his son. And he calls you good. I hope you have a blessed week. I hope that you uh, are able to uh, think about some of the arguments that we've laid last week and this week and that you are inspired to uh, dig deeper, to get closer to Christ, to tell others about him, 
to know the story and to tell the story. Love you guys very much. Have an incredible week. Heavenly Father, bless them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.